Hi, everyone. It's me, Amanda, once again. And as you know, I am re-releasing some of my favorite episodes from over the past three years of Close Horse while I take this month to rest, although I haven't really rested very much, um, to research, do outreach, kind of just brainstorm, come up with some new ideas for Close Horse. It's going pretty well. I have a ton of ideas. This month, I'm really focusing on releasing episodes that I think are going to be the most impactful for new listeners. And one of my favorite series of the last few years was the four-part journey I took into Etsy. I'm going to be really honest and say that about 50% of the time when I begin a project like this, I'm not really sure where it will end and what I will learn along the way, how my feelings towards something will change. And the Etsy sods were a great example of that. Uh, Wow, so much, so much change in my mind. We begin this series in the 1990s when craft and sewing is experiencing a sort of countercultural renaissance. It was such a stroll down memory lane for me and many listeners. But along the way, we learn a lot about early startup culture. Um, I explained a lot of stuff about the strings attached to VC money and sort of how money and runway and everything else works with a startup or really any business as a whole. We take a whole journey into eBay, another thing I didn't see coming. Um, Don't skip the eBay sode because it's wild and it's not at all what you expect it's going to (laughs) be. I'll just tell you that it wasn't for me either when I began. And really, when I began to work on this series of episodes, I knew that I had issues with Etsy. I've never sold on there. I've definitely been a customer, but I know a lot of people who sell on Etsy and some have for a long time. And I had heard rumblings of unfair fee policies, this like pressure to offer low prices and free shipping, but I didn't know exactly where it would take me. After more than a month of full-time, and I mean like 40 hours a week of research and writing, I ended up with a picture more infuriating, more concerning, more complex than I ever thought I would find. This set of episodes, which were released in August of 2021, recorded all in our farmhouse in Burdenhand, Pennsylvania. I'm so homesick for that place. Uh, it was These episodes were created during the halcyon days of working full-time on Close Horse while also seeing clients to pay the bills around here. And I definitely was working like around the clock, but it felt... It felt like such a different time, sort of like a creative renaissance for me, an intellectual renaissance even. Listening to these this series again and seeing how deep I can go, how much I can bring to the surface with more time, it's really lighting a fire under me to figure out how to be able to give Close Horse that kind of time again. Definitely something that is a goal for me as we move through this year and require a lot of changes in my life for sure. (laughs) So nothing easy, but definitely something that is a priority to me. So this episode is part one of a four-part series. I recommend listening to them all. You have to hear the whole story. They are all listener favorites, especially the eBay sode. If you think eBay is boring, old, a place where people just sell knockoff clothes, please go listen to it. 
it was a story I never saw coming. You can find all of these episodes at closehorsepodcast.com. I'm going to link to them in the show notes, or you can scroll back on your favorite podcast feed, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else you listen to Close Horse. Scroll back and look for episodes 90 through 93, and you'll have your Etsy sodes right there. Um, I'm excited for all of you to listen to them for the first time ever or listen to them again and see how they feel now. All right, let's jump right in. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that remembers so fondly my first gift from Etsy. It was from my boyfriend, Baxter, who you've all totally heard about on the department, and it was a knitted holder for my iPod in the shape of the prince from Katamari Damacy. And I felt so cool every time I pulled it out of my bag. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 90, part one of a series I'm calling The Etsy Sodes. Roll your eyes if you want, cringe if you will, scoff. But this is my podcast, and I'm calling the shots around here, and we're calling it The Etsy Sodes. <laughs> Today, we'll dig into the early days of Etsy with special attention on the very crafty, very political, very community driven primordial soup that birthed Etsy. This will be a majorly nostalgic moment for some of you, especially if you've ever subscribed to Bust Magazine or attended a Stitch and Bitch night. I'm going to be honest, I thought that the Etsy sode would be just that, a single, non-plural Etsy sode, but there's just too much to talk about. So this is part one. I also want to give a special, super grateful shout out to my friend and a previous guest, Christine of Lady Hog Vintage, for doing a bunch of research and sending me a ton of info about Etsy. Thank you so much, Christine. She's been selling on Etsy for a long time, so she had a lot of experience and memories to share that uh, they were so great in guiding me as I started writing the story of Etsy. Before we jump into all things Etsy, which I can't wait, this was such a fun episode to make, I want to take a moment to thank some of my new supporters on Patreon because I haven't done that in a while and I need to catch up. So here are some more are coming in the next episode and probably the one after that. First is Katie Bulmer, who is from London. I love when I get an international patron because it makes me feel very successful. Katie, I just wanted to also say one of the things that always struck me as I was traveling to London for work as a person with celiac disease was the plethora of delicious gluten-free baked goods. What a paradise. (laughs) Thank you for your support, Katie, and I hope you're eating a gluten-free cake right now. Next is Caitlin Boucher, who I'm pretty sure is my first patron from New Hampshire. Thank you so much, Caitlin. And I apologize in advance if I just totally butchered your last name, which I probably did. So feel free to message me and set me straight and I'll do a do-over. M. McGarrigal is, well, I feel like she and I are old friends because she's such a strong member of the Close Horse community on Instagram. And we've even exchanged messages. (sighs) 
She's also the owner of Fantastic Eyelashes. Thank you so much, Em. And lastly, but not leastly, is Jamie Hagen, Hagen, I'm sorry, once again, who apparently knows Dustin, my husband, the audio producer of Close Horse. She knows him from AOL chat rooms. That sound you're hearing right now is my brain exploding over just how small this world is. I, I still can't believe it. Thank you so much, Jamie, for both your kind messages and your support of the podcast. If you, yes, you, are interested in supporting my work via Patreon and gaining access to exclusive episodes and swag, please go learn more at patreon.com slash podcast. Thank you to all of you who support me, whether it's via Patreon, by sharing my wacky Instagram posts, or just listening regularly and getting excited about what I have to say. To say I'm grateful to all of you is a huge understatement. It's time to get this story started. So let's set the stage for where it all begins, where a big chunk of the next 15 minutes or more are going to take place. It's 2005. You're like, I I don't even know what was happening there. Well, don't worry. I looked it up for you because I also could not remember what happened in 2005 and Like a lot of years, it was a big one. George W. Bush began his second term as president, and Hurricane Katrina decimated New Orleans, prompting Kanye West to rightfully say, George Bush doesn't care about black people. A company called Amazon, I'm not sure if you've heard of them, this company, Amazon, announced a new subscription service that offered free shipping on all orders, and that service was called Amazon Prime. I'm just going to tell you right now, put a pin in that, because as we often do around here, we're going to talk about the continuing ripple effects caused by Amazon Prime and the delusion of free shipping. We're not going to really talk about it that much in this episode, in this half of the Etsy story, but it will be coming up a lot, spoiler, in the next episode. In 2005, I was living in Portland, Oregon, which I would say was, at that point at least, the West Coast headquarters of DIY and crafting. Yes, I know you're all yelling at your phones, at your computers, at the wall right now. You're saying, that's not true, Amanda, where I lived was. And I would say, yes, crafting and DIY were happening all over the United States. But it was basically a way of life in Portland. Kim and I did an episode of The Department a while back about the importance of DIY and crafting for the early aughts hipsters. And I highly recommend listening to that one, not just for the great nostalgia, but also just a deeper understanding of crafting's place in our culture at that point. I'll share a link to it in the show notes. It's it's a fun listen. The TLDR of all of the aughts episodes we did on the department is that there were two major segments of consumers dominating the popular culture of the early aughts. On one side, you had the mainstream culture of 
Barbie pink and pulling your thong up really high out of your low-rise jeans. The scientific term for that is whale tail. We had Paris Hilton, The Simple Life, Swarovski Crystals, Rock of Love, all the raunch culture. Juicy tracksuits, glittery body dust and lotion and spray. This was the mainstream culture. And of course, pop music, right? You got Britney Spears in there, Christina Aguilera. I know I'm missing lots of other musicians there because I didn't listen to a lot of pop music at that point. Why? Because I was in the other half of the culture, the not mainstream culture of the hipsters. And the hipsters definitely hated everything that the mainstream culture with all of its celebutants and Ed Hardy and affliction and overly distressed, but in a like really ingenuine way, denim represented. Conspicuous consumption, pop music, rom-com films, all of that. Now, of course, the hipsters were just as consumery and misogynist and gross as their mainstream counterparts, but... Well, seriously, just go listen to the entire 2000 series on the department because there's so much to unpack there. But one of the things that the hipsters embraced as a rejection of the mainstream was crafting and DIY. They saw it as so much more genuine than anything Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie were ever going to do. And I was Definitely, without a doubt, one of those hipsters. I was always making jewelry and hair accessories out of felt and buttons. I made pins and stickers of my own. I decorated my bike's basket. I customized every article of clothing that I found thrifting. And I aspired to be able to afford clothing from Seaplane, which was Portland's incredible indie... Such a good boutique, a mixture of upcycled, small brands, literally works of art. In fact, I would call Seaplane the mother of the Portland fashion scene. And one of the co-owners, just while we're here talking about Seaplane, Holly Stalder, she went on to found another one of my favorite boutiques, Haunt. She's since closed the store during the pandemic, but she's still making beautiful clothing. And I, I have a few extra special pieces from her that I have been outfit repeating for years. She's one of the first slow fashion designers that I was aware of. I'll share a link to her website in the show notes because more people should know Holly. While Seaplane was filled with the most aspirational, most fashion-forward clothing and accessories, there were stores and sellers all over Portland specializing in all of the like genres of crafty DIY projects. For the cuter, quirkier hipster, we had Queen Bee Creations, who you most certainly recognize if you're either one, a Portlander, or two, an elder millennial slash Gen Xer who read Bust, Bitch, and Venus in the Odds. The ads and editorial in these magazines introduced their readers who were all over the country and the world to these indie makers, making them household names, well, at least in hipster households, which would probably most likely be like a group house, maybe one bathroom, six people, you know how it goes. Queen Bee specialized in bags and wallets that had these like icon appliques that were also made out of leather or faux leather and they were stitched onto them. They had like contrast stitching. They were flowers, bees, bikes, that kind of thing. 
Is it ringing a bell for you yet? <laughs> you could find Queen Bee and some other Pacific Northwest artists and makers like Nikki McClure on buyolympia.com, which gave this group of Pacific Northwest artists and makers access to a broader customer base in this early era of internet shopping. But in general, small makers were limited in terms of how they could reach customers. Basically what I'm saying is that it was really hard to say, I'm quitting my day job and making a living as a crafter. They could sell at the various craft fairs that were beginning to pop up. Even in Portland, we had a regular weekly craft fair called Saturday Market, where you could find duct tape wallets and all of the toe rings you've ever dreamed of having. The Saturday Market still happens, by the way, and I haven't been there for a really long time, but there was a stand there that sold these catnip toys that, like, there is no cat alive that is not obsessed with these catnip toys. Like, the, the best, the creme de la creme of catnip toys. But the drawback to selling at these various fairs and markets is that the sellers couldn't always predict how it would go for them because they were at the mercy of weather and the customers that decided to show up in the first place. Plus, you might have someone browse, walk through, see something that they wanted to buy from you. How would they find you after the fair or the market was over? So even from a customer acquisition, like building a base of recurring customers perspective, it just... It was, it was difficult. Furthermore, having a booth at these kinds of events, it costs money. Like you pay to rent that space. You have to buy tables and signs and maybe a tent. Then there was all of the time involved in driving to these fairs, setting up, sitting there all day, hoping people would buy stuff, then tearing it all down and driving home again. Makers could also wholesale to smaller boutiques. Makers could email every boutique they could find on the internet, but even Google wasn't that useful back then. They'd probably have to ask Jeeves or something. <laughs> or they could get a booth at the Pool Trade Show. Pool, it's been around since 2001. It's now part of Magic, which is definitely the largest apparel, accessories, and shoe trade show in the United States. I have spent many, many, many hours walking through all of these trade shows. It's such a large event that you need several days to see it all. This trade show happens, magic and pool within it happens twice a year, or at least it did pre-pandemic in Las Vegas. At some point, pool, yes, like swimming pool, like pool of blood, was bought by Magic, and the company describes it as, quote, a community of art and design-driven brands that will particularly appeal to the boutique and lifestyle market. But while you are going to have access to all of these buyers and boutique owners that you would have never found on the internet, showing at this trade show was and is not cheap. Booths are expensive, you have to have catalogs and order forms and business cards printed. You have to actually travel to Vegas, which costs money. You have to stay in a hotel. You need to eat and drink water and take cabs. And it just, it all adds up. And it's kind of risky if you're a maker, unless you have access to some extra cash or maybe you can take out a business loan. Even then, that feels wild to me. And I will tell you, I've never been to Magic or Pool as a brand that's there to sell stuff, but I've been there as a buyer and it is 
such an expensive trip. It's surprising how much it would cost me and maybe my assistant to go to Vegas and walk through various convention halls for three days. And there's so many brands, so much space to cover that it's easy for a maker or a brand to get lost in the shuffle. So this just feels extra risky to me. But obviously, there are makers who turned themselves into brands by showing repeatedly at pool and being able to therefore wholesale their products to stores all over the country. Another option for a maker in terms of building their business and you know extending their reach is that they could form a collective with other makers. That's kind of what buyolympia.com was. And the Austin Craft Mafia was formed after a 2001 meeting of nine women who hoped to grow their craft skills into a way to quit their day jobs. And I also just want to remind you again, this is a pre-social media era. No Instagram. I can't imagine being a small maker building a business pre-Instagram. But the Austin Craft Mafia did. They worked together to build their own businesses and lift up one another's businesses at the same time. A lot of networking, a lot of throwing events together, a lot of taking out ads, going on the road, that kind of stuff. It's an amazing idea. And I'm starting to think we actually need way more of that in 2021. We're starting to see different makers and brands in our community collaborate, you know, and do photo shoots together, collaborate on product, share materials and best practices. And we just need to do more of that, you know? But all of these brands that I see working together that we know from our community, whether it's Danny of Picnic Wear or Jenny of Late to the Party or Abby of Peel and Wax or Selena Sanders, they all know one another via social media. Take that out of the equation because all of these sellers are in different places because all of these makers are in different places, how would they find one another without social media to bring them together? All in all, it was just really hard to reach customers. It was hard to build a community of crafters. These two things were missing. Vintage sellers were a little bit luckier because they had eBay. It's hard to believe now, but in 2005, eBay was the place to find vintage clothing on the internet. The prices were good, although sometimes they were not, and sellers from all over the world were building small businesses just by sourcing, photographing, and listing stuff. Like They would build followings of recurring customers who would come back again and again and again to buy from these sellers based on their branding, which... You know, I look back and I think of, for example, there was one group of women selling called Sisters of the Black Moon. They're from Austin, and I would buy from them all the time. And I think about how solid their branding was within the confines of eBay, and I'm like, wow, like, kudos to them. And there were plenty of other sellers like that. I mean, this is the era of Nasty Gal coming up, starting as an eBay store. You know, many, many vintage sellers in the aughts were able to parlay the business that they built on eBay into, you know, stores and websites and all kinds of other things as that era ended. We'll talk about eBay more in the next episode too. Okay, so eBay was great for vintage sellers, but it wasn't a great fit for crafters and makers because eBay just wasn't set up for quote, 
handmade stuff. And you know, I had to put handmade in quotes there because as we all know, everything we buy is actually made by humans and therefore handmade. So for the rest of this episode and the next episode, when I say handmade, know that I am not saying that with a lack of awareness of all of our other things being made by people, but just that like that's a term that is often associated with Etsy. So you couldn't really sell this so-called handmade, crafted, artisanal stuff on eBay because at that point, eBay was primarily focused on secondhand. I would see articles all over the internet and actually even in my research for this set of episodes, time and time again, reporters would either call eBay the online garage sale or an internet yard sale. Take your pick. I think I also saw rummage sale in there. But in general, eBay was a destination for secondhand stuff. And vintage fit into that bucket. Although once again, I just think back to all of these sellers who saw that opportunity to slide in there and create a store and a customer base on a place where people were also buying, you know, like secondhand appliances and car parts. And I I have no idea what else. I've mostly bought clothes on there and Hello Kitty stuff from Japan. I know that eventually eBay has shifted. It's people sell closeouts on there. They sell other brand new stuff all the time, but it just wasn't happening then. So unless a maker was selling stuff on a site like Made in Olympia or had their own website, which would have been pretty unlikely at this point, they didn't have an entrance into the burgeoning area of e-commerce, otherwise known as buying stuff online. And that was unfortunate because craft, while not being accessible on the internet for purchase, was bigger than ever. As I mentioned, magazines like Bust were making activities like knitting, sewing, and needlepoint super cool again, encouraging the formation of stitch and bitch groups where individuals could hang out at a cool bar or someone's cute apartment, socializing as they worked on the current projects. The Church of Craft was forming chapters all over the country where people could meet and work on projects, totally inspire one another, network. Do you remember crochet and yarn bombing? I mean, I'm sure it still happens, right? It started in 2005 when Magda Sayeg from Houston covered the door handle of her boutique with a custom-made cozy. If you're unfamiliar with the term yarn bombing, it probably means you're not from, say, the Pacific Northwest or the Bay Area. But it's so... I guess I'll just tell you, it's street art made with yarn rather than, say, chalk or paint. If you've seen a tree or a stop sign wearing a little cozy, a little scarf, a little leg warmery looking thing, you just witnessed some yarn bombing. And yarn bombing was 100% both a creative expression and a political act. The hipster culture of the aughts saw craft as a more genuine means of creative expression and shopping although they were also still shopping at Urban Outfitters, but that was, I don't know what that was. So many makers and crafters began to make big names for themselves thanks to magazines like Bust and some of these like crafting groups that were forming across the country. Jenny Hart, for example, 
a member of the Austin Craft Mafia, by the way, showed us that embroidery was cool with her line of needlepoint patterns, sublime stitching. Debbie Stoller, one of the founders and editors of Bust, wrote a series of iconic knitting books. Seriously, pick one up if you're interested in finally learning how to knit or crochet because it's really easy to pick up from those books. Stoller herself said, Knitting is part of the same do-it-yourself ethos that spawned zines and mixtapes. Because more and more people were believing that making something yourself was a true political statement, a revolutionary act. I mean, this sounds more relevant than ever, right? Because it's about having a deeper connection, a bigger relationship, a super commitment to the things in your life that you use and wear, why not make it for yourself? So it's just, you made it, it is a part of you. Ultimately, making something yourself or very literally buying it from a person you can see in front of you ensures, hopefully, that you're reducing the human exploitation in the supply chain of making that product. So that makes it even better. And once again, you love this product, you're committed to it, because you made it. I would also be a complete jerk if I didn't mention that Wendy Mullen, aka Built by Wendy, showed the world that sewing could be cool too with the publication of her book, Sew You, in 2006. I love that book. We also got to interview her for the department. You should go check that out. But, you know, it's important to say that at this time, a lot of people didn't know how to sew. Sewing seemed like something you're mom or your grand not even your mom your grandma probably did it and it wasn't cool there weren't cool sewing patterns there wasn't cool fabric it just wasn't a cool thing to do unless you were in fashion school even on the mainstream culture side of things my queen martha stewart was out of prison and ready to show us even more complicated ways to celebrate the holidays so crafting was in the ether right it was ready to super blow up. Okay, so this whole time I've been talking about 2005, but we're going to take a really fast trip back to 1998 when Jean Ryla started a website called Get Crafty. This was before crafting was seen as a hip, cool, political thing. Okay, that's not actually accurate per se. We know that craft had its own renaissance for the boomers during the 60s and 70s. There was also a big crafting as a countercultural activity movement after World War II. And truth be told, a lot of the riot girls were really engaging in a lot of DIY throughout the 90s. But in general, for Gen Xers and the elder millennials, crafting as we know it now just hadn't happened yet. The millennials were maybe because they were kids crafting friendship bracelets and beaded jewelry from, you know, princess-themed kits. But in general, crafting had become sort of an old lady thing to do. So Ryla was doing something pretty major here. GetCrafty.com, otherwise known as the home of the craftistas, was the first website to bring together the new generation of crafters and really look at it from a feminist, progressive, political perspective. A version of that website still remains, and it says, quote, When Jean Ryla was in her 20s, 
She thought being a bohemian meant smoking in cafes and going home to a crummy, dusty, walk-up apartment. But then she had a shocking thought. Would vacuuming really get her booted from the Riot Girls Club? So she began to cook, and then to knit, and then she took up sewing. Soon she had launched GetCrafty.com, the webzine for radical craftiness. Get Crafty is about realizing that domesticity matters, that an apartment with handmade pillows or a bathroom with an Elvis theme is more life-affirming than the same old Ikea couch. Jean inspires readers to start making creative choices throughout their lives in the way they shop, cook, dress, decorate, and of course, craft. I mean, reading that right now, I feel like we just nailed the pillars of the clothes horse community. Returning to this century, yes, we're saying goodbye to 1998, but we'll always hold it in our hearts. In 2005, just after the publication of Ryla's book, Get Crafty, Hip Home Ec, environmental engineer Carrie Tipton, who at least at the time also lived in Pittsburgh, I don't know if any of you know her, but shout out to Pittsburgh, she wrote a loving essay for Satya about Get Crafty and its impact on her life called Getting Crafty as a feminist statement. She said, if I had to choose the one way the getcrafty.com message boards most shape my life, it wouldn't be from the incredibly helpful crafty tips, but by introducing me to so many smart and interesting women. Women who weren't afraid to use the word feminist and who thought about the issues I was dealing with, how to reconcile our need for community with our work and its demands on our time, and how to craft our lives in the direction we wanted them to go. And maybe it was being surrounded by so many strong and vocal women, or maybe it's the direction my growth would take anyway, but the longer I craft, the more I think about societal issues. For example, crafting not only as a pleasant and rewarding activity, but as an inherently political activity. What is more political than giving homemade gifts during the holidays, avoiding Black Friday and conspicuous consumerism in favor of items you make as you hold the recipient in mind? Well, you know where I'm going to land there. I mean, this was written 16 years ago, and it also feels more relevant than ever because, you know, while this idea was picking up a lot of momentum in 2005, it kind of went away for the Audis you know, that era of 2010 to 2020. Tipton ends her essay by saying, as Jean remarks in the afterward, being crafty is about viewing your whole life as one big craft project. So don't be shy to pick up those knitting needles, crochet hooks, hot glue guns, or sewing machines to read a new cookbook or take pride in your home. It's a feminist crafting revolution, and it's about creating a better life for ourselves. You know, here in 2021, as I'm reading this to you, it probably feels super antiquated to imagine cooking, cleaning, sewing, and crafting as a revolutionary activity. But women who grew up in the 80s and 90s were told to prioritize career and education over home and craft. Even the federal government felt that way. As I talked about way back in my home act and sewing episodes with Mary, In the 80s, the Reagan administration decided to stop funding home ec programs in public schools and shift that money into more job-related skills. As if cooking, cleaning, and sewing were not only essential to -to day-to-day life, but also potential career paths. 
I know I just started that paragraph by saying that it seems super antiquated to imagine cleaning, cooking, sewing, and crafting as revolutionary as a political statement, but actually it still is. Like I said, that excitement, that sense of community and anti-consumerism that I'm talking about from 2005, it went on hiatus in the Audis. With less and less people knowing how to do these things themselves, they've been pushed into a corner of consumerism where they must outsource the food they eat, have someone else clean their homes, have someone else do their laundry, everything. I mean, I have worked with so many people over the years who were super intelligent, great at their jobs, all in all amazing creative people, yet all of their meals were from restaurants or the to-go section at Whole Foods because they just did not know how to cook or even truly grocery shop. I mean, these are just skills that we no longer had. So this idea of us reclaiming these skills of making things for ourselves and the others in our lives, it feels more urgent, more exciting, more revolutionary than ever. I'm just going to tell you that while I remember vaguely seeing Ryla's book out there at the time, I never read it. So I will say that after I wrote this script, I uh, totally ordered a copy from Thrift Books. I have to know. I think, I think it's going to be really interesting experience to read that and think about it in a 2021 lens. So look forward to hearing more about that in the future for me. Debbie Stoller, once again, one of the founders of Bust Magazine, described Get Crafty, the book, as Martha Stewart meets Patti Smith in this essential homemaking manual for the modern day gal and guy, with projects ranging from the straightforward, like how to paint your room, to the sublime, like Jean's grandmother's Madeline recipe. Uh, can't wait to see that. As well as a keen sense of both the political and spiritual reasons for why young people are embracing the new domesticity. Get Crafty is the best proof yet that crafting is the new rock and roll. Doesn't that make you want to buy this book and read it right now and talk about it with me? Do we need to have like a book club and this is the first book? I'm, you know, I'm just going to put that out there. Who's interested in reading this book next month? Or this month, I guess. It's August now. So anyway, let's take stock of where we are. It's 2005. Yes, we've been talking about 2005 for so long now. This is the most I have talked or thought about 2005, probably since 2006. <laughs> anyway, Jean Ryla has just published her book, Get Crafty. I'm sure she's riding high on how stoked everyone is about it. And so she hires a guy named Robert Kalin and some of his friends to redesign getcrafty.com. Like, we've got more eyes on it. Let's zhuzh it up. Let's make it better than ever. At the time, Kalen was studying at NYU, which, funny story, he had horrible grades in high school, couldn't get into any colleges, so he somehow forged an MIT ID to get on campus, befriended a professor there who wrote a recommendation for him to get into NYU. And the fact that I know this means I'm either going to be the best party guest you've ever had or the most annoying. <laughs> Anyway, so Kaylin's studying at NYU, but despite all of the shenanigans he had to engage in to get there, 
he wasn't he was feeling sort of lost about what he was going to do with his life. He and his buddies Chris McGuire and Haim Shopik, who also worked on the site with him. They had some woodworking experience, but they would have described themselves as techie types more than crafty types. In fact, they would tell you they had very little knowledge or awareness of this crafting phenomenon that was sweeping young women all over the country. But soon, Caitlin started to see that there was a massive opportunity there. He realized that while tons of crafters were just dreaming of giving up their full-time jobs and making a living crafting instead, there just weren't a lot of opportunities to do that. As I fully dissected earlier, it was really hard to make a living off of selling your crafts because there was just no easy way to reach customers. What if Kaylin could adopt the eBay concept for a community of crafters? And I just want to add here, I've talked about eBay on the pod in the past, and we, a lot of us probably think of eBay as just so old school, so uncool, so just one of those things that's on the internet that we don't engage with. But I have to tell you, eBay revolutionized small business in the United States and I would say internationally. And I don't think that's hyperbole because before eBay, if you wanted to start a small business selling things, you would have to buy a bunch of inventory. You would have to open a store. You would have to buy fixtures and hire staff and get a cash register and a credit card machine, shopping bags, and you know, on and on and on. eBay said, hey, do you have stuff you want to sell? All you're going to pay is a listing fee of a few cents and, you know, give us a percentage of your sales. You don't need to rent the storefront. You don't need to buy a ton of inventory. You don't even need to take out a loan or anything for this inventory. You can sell five things. You can sell 500 things. You don't have to take the financial risk. And that allowed a lot of people to start maybe initially kind of a side hustle, but over time, People built businesses there, not just the vintage sellers I was talking about either. I mean, like people selling, you know, auto parts, things like that. And with the addition of PayPal, you know, eBay funded almost all of the development of PayPal, which was the first time that ordinary people could exchange money for goods and services or just with one another without writing a check or buying a money order or handing someone some cash. These are things that 100% changed the future of e-commerce and the future of what it could mean to start your own business in this century. So adopting the eBay concept for a crafting community, it's not a bad idea. It makes sense. Well, he's discussed this with Ryla, our buddy, Jean Ryla, and she thought it was a brilliant idea. She agreed to act as an advisor on the project, but ultimately she just wasn't really into this idea of commercializing crafting. For her, crafting was more of a philosophy, a way of life, and its magic and power lie in participation, not consumption. She discussed this in her regular craft magazine column, arguing, quote, the practice satisfies the urge to create, it values feminine art forms, it provides relief from the digital world, and yes, 
it is a form of political statement against the dehumanizing global supply chain. But she was also aware that despite all of the revolutionary aspects of crafting, not everyone had the time or privilege to craft. Nonetheless, they would appreciate being able to buy more ethical products that even if you didn't have the luxury of DIY in your life, you had an appreciation for DIY. So in that way, she was supportive of the Etsy concept in the beginning. A few years later, in 2008, as Etsy had sold millions of items on its platform, she would write an essay called, What Would Jesus Sell? Where she said, quote, isn't shopping, no matter how wonderfully crafty and politically correct, still, well, shopping? Can you escape the so-called sin of consumerism by buying handmade? Isn't the whole point of modern crafting do-it-yourself, not buy from someone who's doing it themselves? Not to be a total hypocrite, I shop Etsy and artisan crafters as well as buy the crap from China just like everyone else. It's just that I see a new trend which is moving away from crafting and towards consuming. What's next? Hip craft aisles at Walmart? Well, I do have some bad news for you, Jean. Everyone has a hip craft aisle now. Also, it's clear at this point that Rila was starting to doubt the revolutionary part of this craft revolution. And her statement is nonetheless a very pointed criticism of what Etsy would eventually become. I don't know if she saw it coming. Maybe she knew something then that we didn't know. I'm not really sure. But I think this is a great time to pause for a second. Let's kind of recap what we've thought about and discussed so far. So here it is. It's 2005. <laughs> We're still there. Etsy hasn't even launched yet, right? It doesn't even have a name. And there is this craft revolution happening, the so-called new domesticity. And at its heart is this political revolutionary vibe, right? That it was feminist, that it was anti-consumerist. I don't know if people were saying anti-capitalist a lot back then, but it was. And it was also about community. Going out and knitting or doing needlepoint with your friends and just talking, making connections, building relationships. There was also this community aspect of, you know, putting together these craft markets, of banding together to meet customers, of teaching other people how to sew or knit or cook. It was very countercultural. It was very anti-consumerism. And it was very, very community-focused. Okay, still 2005. And we're going to go back to Kalen and his big new business idea. eBay, but for crafting. Okay, he didn't call it that, but we're going to call it that. eBay, but for crafting. He consulted his grandfather about making Etsy a reality. But, you know, his grandfather gave him all this direction. It was very common sense. It's what any business class would have told him. Kalen didn't like it. He didn't like his grandfather's suggestions, advice. He thought it was all boring and tedious. You know, stuff like 
writing a business plan and creating a budget, Kalen was like, no. He decided not to write a business plan, figuring that if he could just build the site, it would function as a living, breathing proof of the concept. Next, he wrote a fan letter to one of the founders of Flickr, which is, holy shit, I haven't thought about Flickr for so long. I loved that. Remember how you could like make friends and follow people on Flickr? Well, this founder of Flickr became an investor in this eBay for crafting (laughs) concept. A founder of Delicious, the social bookmarking site, another one, I'm pretty sure it's an RIP situation. That founder also invested and, and this is really important, this is something that's going to come back time and time again, so I'm totally spoiling this for you. So did a New York venture capital firm. I'm just going to go ahead and say here, this whole Etsy origin story has got to be the most privileged white dude origin story. Guy decides with no background in business or experience to ignore all advice about how to start a business, writes a fan letter, gets some money. But that's basically what happened. And I also, I'm just going to hit on this again, put a really, really big pin in this, that venture capital money, because it's not the last time Etsy is going to take VC money. And that kind of money has a lot of strings attached. And those strings are made of that plastic fishing line that never breaks. VC money means two things. The company must grow exponentially and it must be profitable. And I really want you to keep that in mind. As a person who's worked in the startup arena and has had to go out and pitch to VC groups, let me tell you, it is hard because they want to hear the kookiest, most aspirational, just completely out of reach, unrealistic numbers from you. We're going to open 100 stores in two years and we're going to make a billion dollars and the profit margin is going to be 95% and this and that. And it's just, it's, it's, a, it's really difficult money to take. On the other hand, that's where the big money is. Anyway, what's with the name Etsy? I mean, I remember the first time I heard the name Etsy. I was, I'm going to be honest, I was kind of turned off. It sounded really cutesy and not very cool. Like it might be the name of a really adorable dog. But on the other hand, it did also remind me of Effie of Skins. Yes, I'm a major Skins fan over here. Well, in a January 2010 interview for Reader's Digest, yes, guys, I went deep here, okay? Kaylin explained the name. He said, I wanted a nonsense word because I wanted to build the brand from scratch. I was watching Fellini's Eight and a Half and writing down what I was hearing. In Italian, you say Etsy a lot. It means, oh, yes. And in Latin, it means, and if. All right, well, I guess that seems fine. And it's, you know, nothing else is called Etsy. Maybe a cute dog, like I said. About 90% of the early sellers on Etsy were women. Today, it's still 87%. The customers themselves that were shopping on Etsy were cut from the same cloth as the sellers. Is that a crafting pun or what? To be cut from the same cloth? Anyway, uh, the sellers were, you know, all of them were passionate about craft, shopping small, community, support, very political, very liberal. And the people working in the Etsy offices were from the same community as the sellers and shoppers too. So it it all sounds very magical, right? 
Nora Abustet, which I totally just blew that name, was one of the co-founders of Berta Style, which is a sewing community, still exists. She rented out a spare desk at Etsy headquarters, and she got to witness the cool community around the brand. She told Vox, there was this one woman who worked there who used to wake up every two hours just to curate the Etsy homepage. It was a passion. It was amazing. And Etsy was, as crafting was, all about community. In 2010, so years later, don't worry, we're not leaving 2005 right now. But for a moment, we'll just say that in 2010, Kalen told the Wall Street Journal that his vision for the company had always been, quote, instead of having an economy dictate the behavior of communities to empower communities to influence the behavior of economies. And early Etsy walked that walk. For example, the community had these street teams who were crafters that organized around things like better booth rates for art fairs and pop-ups, like they were these little crafting collectives. The company held entrepreneurial workshops for its sellers with names like How to Grow Your Global Microbrand. It offered shop critiques. It taught its sellers how to write press releases. It showed them the best practices of its most successful sellers. It had its own magazine video cast called The Stork, that's spelled S-T-O-R-Q-U-E, in case you were wondering, which the New York Times called a DIY business school. Kaylin also hired the best Etsy sellers to literally work for the company in the hopes of being able to share their skills as both crafters and entrepreneurs directly with all of the sellers using the platform. The company also held weekly craft nights at their office, they hosted a book club, and they created Etsy Labs, a community-focused program that taught craft and business skills to the public. I mean, this is amazing. So far, everything we're talking about really aligns with this idea of community that was at the heart of the crafting movement. In the first 10 months of business, 10,000 artists sold their handmade goods to over 40,000 buyers. Over 70,000 items were sold on Etsy. And it kind of felt miraculous because, well, for one, Etsy was giving makers this opportunity to build a business out of their passions. And two, it was prioritizing the success of its sellers and their businesses over the larger Etsy business. Basically almost saying, our business is successful if these sellers are successful, right? Like we're in this together. And I, I just can't tell you enough how revolutionary that idea was and still is. And I can tell you, we know where Etsy is now. We know where a lot of the resale platforms are right now and where they've been. But even back in 2005 and 2006, eBay, the other platform out there that was allowing everyday people to grow their own businesses via the internet, eBay definitely... I mean, I don't know, maybe early eBay did this, but I don't remember a moment where eBay prioritized its seller's success over its own success. Early Etsy was so cool, but you knew there was a but coming. It wasn't profitable. That's going to be a recurring theme here. They ran out of cash flow in the summer of 2006, 10 months after launching, 
So Etsy accepted another round of VC funding, this time from Union Square Ventures. Once again, the promise of exponential growth and profitability was made. And to be fair, in that first 10 months, that was some pretty exponential growth. But once again, not the profitability. And I'll just tell you again, as a person who's had to have these kinds of meetings with VC, the exponential growth can never stop. It's not like, oh, it's for the first two or three or five years. It's supposed to be sort of infinite. And that's just that's just a fallacy. That's something I've learned time and time again, working in the fashion industry that brands plateau and that's that. And the best thing you can hope is that each year is a little bit bigger than the year before, but it doesn't have to be exponentially bigger. On July 29th, 2007, finally, we're in another year here, Etsy registered its 1 millionth sale. That same year, Etsy partnered with other crafters, including the Austin Craft Mafia, to form the Handmade Pledge, which people could sign at buyhandmade.org. It said, I pledge to buy handmade this holiday season and request that others do the same for me. A statement on the site said, buying handmade is better for people and better for the environment because mass production is a major cause of global warming, among other things. There were also links to an anti-sweatshop site and a Walmart watchdog site because in 2007, it was a simpler time, the worst company anyone could think of was Walmart. This was only two years after the creation of Amazon Prime. Let's take a moment here. Let's have an interlude, if you will, to talk again, I know I talked about it earlier, about Etsy's use of the word handmade and just in general, this handmade pledge. Let's talk about the word handmade. It feels like a very cynical ploy, a cynical marketing ploy that not only reinforces but relies on the ignorance of its consumers. And I know ignorance, that sounds like a really pejorative term, but at the end of the day, ignorance means not knowing, right? And at this point, uh, in you know, in 2007, at the time of this handmade pledge, the average person does not know that everything we buy is handmade, literally made by people. I mean, we've talked here on the podcast in the past many times about how a lot of people assume that robots make our clothes, that robots are making it all, I guess, or machines. It's just like a special machine where you like pour the raw materials in and at the end comes out an iPhone or a computer or a desk chair or some clothes, right? And so I like to think that everybody who was working on this handmade campaign knew, in fact, that all things are made by people, I hope. Um, And since they knew that, they also knew that handmade is a word, much like a lot of the terms we hear in, you know, used in greenwashing, like sustainable and green and organic, they knew that the word handmade would get this emotional response from the customer. And it would imply that a handmade product was superior to all the other products out there because the average person wouldn't know that all products are handmade. I guess I just, 
I have a problem with that term and I know why they're using it. And I know what they really mean is shop small, right? Support small business. But instead what they're really doing is actually erasing all the work that so many workers all over this planet are putting in to create these mass-produced things. That's, that's my problem with the term handmade, is that it only reinforces this idea that all of our stuff is made by machines and no humans suffer to get it done. It makes those workers, those people, even more invisible. And so... It's almost like the term handmade, especially when it's being used in this very like, this is the political high road kind of manner. It's dehumanizing so many other humans and I hate it. I I would love to hear your thoughts on other adjectives that describe what we're seeing on Etsy. Handcrafted, artisanal, small business, small runs. I don't know. I I just, I had to have that moment and I hope it wasn't too annoying for you to explain why Handmade is so troubling to me. That year, 2007, Etsy had record sales every day in December. This is that exponential growth everyone's been wanting. And both retailers and the press began to take notice. By this point, I was working in the buying office of a massive quasi-hipster retailer, and the bosses were concerned about Etsy. I mean, would they take some of our holiday sales? Would they destroy our company? I mean, there was a lot of fretting happening in this era. We fretted about American Apparel. Now we're fretting about Etsy. No one was worried about Amazon yet. Etsy and its handmade pledge, its army of politically minded crafters who hated mass manufactured anything, well, that was anathema to what my employer was selling, which was many units of everything available, right? The question never was, how can we support makers and crafters in the same way Etsy does? How can we grow this community around crafting and be a part of it? No, instead it was, how can we cash in on the success of Etsy and DIY culture? Somehow, I was given the green light to collaborate with some Etsy sellers. And after scrolling and scrolling and scrolling through the site, I landed on an amazing knit designer named Yoku, who, by the way, still sells her super cool knit, as in knit out of yarn products, on Etsy. And I'll, sh- I'll link to her in the show notes. My job was to get Yoku to license some of her designs to us so I could have the much cheaper fast fashion version made by one of our vendors. She had final sign-off on all of the production samples, and we certainly didn't own the designs for perpetuity or anything like that. Overall, I'd like to think it was good for her, actually, because it at least put some money in her pocket, and we didn't do anything predatory or exploitive. Who knows how that would deal would work out in 2021. But back then, it was... It was like she was doing us a favor and not the other way around. I thought about reaching out to her to ask her how she felt about the whole thing for this episode, but I didn't want to be weird. So who knows? If you know Yoku, send her my way. I still have and wear a hat from that collection. It's really meaningful to me. So thanks, Yoku, for making something so rad and working with me on that a million years ago. 
The press was also taking more notice of Etsy. And in December of that year, New York Times reporter Rob Walker went to the Etsy offices to meet Robert Kalin. And it was exactly as one would picture it. It was people screen printing bandanas in the hallway. It was a skateboard ramp. I'm sure people were drinking whimsical beverages and, you know, I don't know, listening to Broken Social Scene or something. (laughs) I'm just going to go ahead and read a direct passage from Walker's article. It's called Handmade 2.0 because it's kind of snarky and I can't recreate this snark. So let's just... Let's just read this paragraph. Are you ready? Kaylin is 27 and seems even younger, with boyish features and reddish hair. Serious in a way that could either be read as earnest or deadpan, he told me the stories behind a stuffed animal and an interesting metal sculpture on his desk, both from Etsy sellers. He then handed me a piece of crocheted bacon. (laughs) In order to explain his company, he offered me a seat and reached for a book. It was a children's book about a fish named Swimmy. He pulled his chair closer and read aloud. The upshot was that a whole bunch of little fish gang up and begin swimming in a formation that resembles one huge fish, thus warding off predators. In their formation, the fish named Swimmy assumes the position where the eye would be. Kalen closed the book. We want to be the eye, he said, in case I'd missed the point, like Swimmy. Okay, so you can pick up the subtle level of snark of disrespect for Kaylin on the behalf of this reporter. And this was not unusual at the time. Uh, Once again, we're talking about, you know, 2007 here, 14 years ago, the rise of so many of these startups, startup culture, like young people coming in with no business experience and obtaining millions of and millions of dollars to start their crazy, and I'm using that in quotes, crazy online businesses. And press around these startups sort of took two different approaches. One was what's happening here with Walker's profile for the New York Times, where it's like, these crazy kids, they're so full of themselves. They have skate ramps in their offices and they don't know what they're doing. They think they're smarter than they are, aren't they adorable, but kind of like this condescending approach. And the other route the press took around these startup companies, which still remains to this day, I see it all the time, it was especially extreme in the hashtag girl boss era, was this fawning approach of like, oh, these geniuses, they're so, they're so different from you and me, and they deserve everything that comes their way, and they do no wrong. They're visionaries. We're so grateful to have them. And of course, that that approach totally allowed all these toxic workplaces to grow unfettered and unchecked because no one was doing their due diligence to see what was really happening behind the curtain at these businesses. On the other hand, that first approach that Walker's taking super snarky is it's kind of a dick move for, for lack of a better description because you know what? Etsy was and is still a really groundbreaking idea. I can't say that enough here. For all of the critique we're going to have of Etsy in the next episode, Etsy did something that no other business was doing at that point. And we can't, we can't underscore that enough. It allowed makers to 
actually do what they wanted for a living rather than work at Starbucks or in a call center or in some lame corporate job that they hated. Well, now that I've totally derailed our conversation yet again, I'm just going to remind you that before my tangent about how the press dealt with startups, I was telling you about how Kaylin read that book about Swimmy to the New York Times reporter Rob Walker. I want to remind you of that because that book about Swimmy comes up again in the Etsy story. So the next year in 2008, Kaylin posted a video of himself reading that book on Etsy's blog, writing, quote, we do not want Etsy itself to be a big tuna fish. Those tuna are the big companies that all of us small businesses are teaming up against. I super appreciate this sentiment. So far in this story, I feel like Kaylin is a really good dude with good intentions. I'm probably a little full of himself, probably a little self-important, but he didn't want to be Amazon. He didn't want to be Walmart. But it's really hard to not want to be Walmart, to not want to be Amazon when you're taking money from venture capital. I cannot say that enough. The reporter, Rob Walker from the New York Times, who is visiting him and listening to him read Swimmy, he makes it very clear throughout this article that while Kalen is passionate and maybe even visionary, he also spews a lot of nonsense that almost makes the premise of Etsy seem unviable, too idealistic, too community-focused, to actually make a profit. This indictment of Kalen that he's just too, I don't know, ethical to be a successful CEO will be a recurring theme in the Etsy story. And yet at the same time, Walker also concedes this, quote, many crafters no doubt feel passionately about the ideals suggested by the handmade pledge, a horror of sweatshop labor and corporate conformity, concern about the environment, and they would be pleased to see the broader consumer culture embrace them too. Meanwhile, there's also the more salient matter of how to make a rewarding, meaningful, and satisfying living without having to give up on those ideals. The women who have led the craft movement don't want to work for the man, but many are also motivated by having reached adulthood at a time when the man is slashing benefits, reneging on pensions, laying people off, and if hiring, is looking for customer service reps and baristas. This is not a utopian alt-youth framework. It's a very real-world alt-grown-up framework. So, wow, I feel like that paragraph could be talking about right now. It's funny that here it is, 2007, that we're still talking about, and yet this feeling of not wanting to work for the man, of seeing the man as someone who doesn't care about its workers or the planet, I mean, this is still relevant, more relevant than ever. And so... While Rob Walker in this article about Etsy is pretty snarky, he also has to admit, like, I I get it. And these are adults who are doing this. These aren't just, like, passionate, riled-up teenagers who are going to yell a lot and then, you know, get into line and go get a job in accounting. So in 2007, Etsy was on fire, The press was intrigued, retailers were frightened, and makers were finally making a living off of their work. And there was this flourishing, happy, supportive community of Etsy sellers and customers. The expectation, or at least the promise that Kalen was making to his VC investors, 
was that the company would be profitable by the end of the year. After all, you're going to take that VC money, you have to make a lot of promises, and unfortunately, you must deliver on them. Well, Etsy was not profitable in 2007. And so in 2008, when the company had monthly sales of about $4.3 million and monthly web traffic of about 230 million page views, venture capitalist Jim Breyer, who at the time was a board member at Facebook and Walmart, led another $27 million round of funding that included more money from Union Square Ventures. And by the way, members of the Etsy community were not happy about this connection to Walmart because like I said, in this era, the worst company that anyone could name was Walmart because they they didn't know about Amazon. <laughs> Don't worry, they'll be a worse company. This $27 million in funding was the big time in terms of investment. And it meant more than ever that Etsy must continue to grow and it must become profitable, which meant providing a community and education for its sellers and customers could no longer be its primary goal. It had to also make some serious money for its very serious investors. And that's where I'm going to leave off with this story. I'm going to continue it in the next episode. We're going to talk about 2008, the year they took that money, a pivotal time for Etsy. There's a lot more stuff that's going to come with us, but it was a definitely a pivotal time in terms of philosophy of the company, and it led to a lot of things that I know have become pain points for Etsy sellers in 2021. I asked you all on the last episode and via social media to share your stories as an Etsy seller, whether it's something that's happening now, something that's happened in the past. I would love to hear from some of you who were there in the beginning. Please send me your stories this week. You can send me an email. You can call the Close Horse Hotline. The number is in the show notes. Or you can record a voice memo on your phone or computer and email that to me. But I would love to get a ton more stories in next week's episode. So please send them my way tell me about Etsy. And if you're thriving on Etsy, I want to hear that too. I want to hear all of the experiences. I've been doing a lot of thinking, a lot of reflection over the past few weeks as I've passed the one year mark of Close Horse. I still, it went so fast, it went so slowly, but it's been a year. And I've been pinpointing the core values, the pillars, the priorities of the podcast and its Instagram account, and therefore my work, right? And I've settled on three pillars. I love that word because it sounds very fancy, right? And these pillars probably won't be a surprise to any of you. Number one is education, as in providing information for all of you. So you can share it with all the people around you, then they can share it with everyone in their lives and so on and so on. And then soon, everybody knows that clothing is made by people, not robots. Just one example there. Along with that, I wanna inspire you to take action in your community and to be active in engaging with both brands and your elected representatives. 
I'm focused on not just telling you the what and the how of what's happening in this world, but the now what that helps us create change. Number two is progress, not perfection. Too often, I feel that we become intimidated and overwhelmed by the prospect of being perfect people, perfect activists, perfect environmentalists, and perfect models in the community. And then you know what happens? We just give up and shut down. Yes, sometimes you're going to buy some clothes from Target. And you know what? That's totally okay. As long as you care for them, mend them, wear them a long time, and pass them on to another person when you're done with them. Sometimes you're gonna have a bad day and do some so-called retail therapy, but you're learning and you're catching yourself and you're more aware of the decisions you make and their impact on the planet. Progress is always going to be more important than perfection. Number three is the power of our personal stories and experiences, aka one of my favorite sayings, the personal is political. And that means creating a platform for more members of our community to share their stories and experiences here on the podcast via the hotline, emails, audio essays, and conversations with me. This is super important to me. And sharing your stories about Etsy, for example, is just the beginning. In general, if you have an idea, a story, a question that you think will benefit the community, help the community see why something is important, or maybe allow members of our community to see their own experiences with more clarity, send it my way. I want to hear from you. You know, you're probably wondering why I didn't say community as one of these three pillars. Well, That's because our community, which I hope will continue to grow, is supported by these three pillars. I can't emphasize enough how important all of you are to me and to what I do. It's one thing for me to speak into a microphone and hope that someone listens. It's another thing to work on all of this in service to all of you, which is how I view my work on Clothes Horse. All of you You're what has kept me motivated during the last year. All of you have only increased my passion and my drive for the work that I'm doing. Every time one of you says, I've changed the way I shop, or I learned to repair clothes, or I told my friends about this thing and it changed their minds, every time I hear that, I just get more excited to work harder. One thing I hear a lot, I don't think it's meant negatively, but it sometimes feels a little critical is how do you create so much content? How do you work so hard all the time? Well, it helps that I live in the middle of nowhere where I don't have any friends and I have an autoimmune disease, so I have to stay home during the pandemic. But I also love what I'm doing here because I feel like my work, at least right now, is necessary and it's having an effect on others. I definitely didn't feel that way when I started Close Horse. I didn't know where it was going. I promise all of you that I will take a break when I need it. And I definitely will stop working on Close Horse when there are no more people to educate, no more minds to change, and no more systems to dismantle. 
I definitely look forward to having all of you by my side until we get there. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, written, researched, and edited by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you enjoyed yourself, which I hope you did, please rate, review, and subscribe, and tell your friends. That's that's just how it works. <laughs> please don't forget to check out my other podcast, which I cited more than ever, like a record number of times in this episode, the department. Go listen to all of those episodes about the aughts. They're such a delight. And I say that as a person who's had to listen to them like 10 times as part of the editing process. So I know of what I speak. (laughs) And thanks as always to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.